Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I talk with Rita Lau about the Great Wall of Porn, obscuring information about protests in China. And Ron Miller comes on to recap the AWS reInvent event and his story on Salesforce CEO Brett Taylor stepping down. But first, I'll break down the biggest stories in tech. It's that time of year when Spotify reminds us all it knows us very intimately with Spotify Wrapped. This year's a bit different, though. Spotify was beat at its own game by a third-party app called InstaFest, which provides a poster of your very own personalized music festival. It's a free app that requires you to grant it access to your Spotify account, but you can revoke that at any time. The app was instantly popular, and its developer also recently added support for Apple Music. You can read more about that from Yvonne Mehta on TechCrunch. Elon Musk's Twitter needs a lot of work to get shipshape in order to comply with new governance rules introduced by the European Union. EU regulators warn Musk directly that the service needs to make a number of changes in order to get in good standing with its Digital Services Act, which goes into force for large companies like Twitter in February. Failure to comply with the act's requirements, which restricts how online ads can be targeted and requires reporting around automated content moderation, can trigger fines of up to 6% of a company's global annual revenues. Read more about this from Natasha Lomas on TC. BeReal won App of the Year in Apple's own annual awards for its app marketplace and also earned top app as a judge by users of Google's Play Store. The social app limits posts to once per day at a random time determined by the app itself. There are no filters, and the capture includes both a view from the phone's rear-facing camera as well as the selfie cam. You can check out more of the year's top apps from Sarah Perez on TechCrunch. First up, I talk with Rita Lau about how the Chinese government is using Twitter bots to obscure information about widespread protests. Hey, Rita, how's it going? I'm good, I'm good. I'm looking forward to my first podcast with TechCrunch. Oh, we're excited too. Yeah, it's great to have you, and I'm sure you'll be back a lot of times. Yes, look forward to that. But uh, you had an article this week that you wrote with Catherine about something happening on Twitter where news of recent protests is being obscured by other content. Do you want to tell us a bit about that article and what exactly is happening? Yeah, sure. So basically what happened was all these Twitter bots was obscuring legitimate search results of Chinese city names. And what happened was that there's recently been a wave of anti-COVID protests across major cities in China and because this topic is strictly censored on all the local Chinese social media, people are pouring onto foreign platforms like Twitter and Telegram to disseminate information and kind of help organize uh, the protests. But these platforms have long been censored in China. Mm. So people were using VPNs to access these platforms already. But once they've got onto Twitter, if they want to search like real-time protest events in major cities, all they get is this wall of uh, porn and escort ads and gambling content. And so it's just make it really difficult or actually impossible to find any real genuine results from genuine users talking about these protests. Um, because right. literally every few seconds, there are new porn ads and, <laughs> and escort ads popping up wow. in, in these search results. Yeah. So is that, I mean, it's maybe for some of our listeners, it may be like a novel or maybe something they haven't heard about before, but is that like a common tactic used on some of these networks where people are trying to find information that like all of a sudden you have all this bot content coming in to try to obscure genuine results? Yeah, I don't think this is new. So in the past, before this wave of protests, and it's worth pointing out that 
this anti-COVID protest, like nationwide protests in China are very, very rare. Right. Um, the act of defiance against the government is very rare. And the fact that these protests spread like a virus overnight makes it even uh, more impressive. So before the protests, uh, if you try to search China cities in Chinese language on Twitter, you usually see a few of these escort ads. But I think since the protests broke out, there's just been a significant spike in the number of ads. Like before, you could still see real location-based relevant stuff. stuff. But since then, um, there's this independent researcher who did a crawl on these search results, and he saw that since this past weekend, there's just been a spike. And most of these accounts are managed by bots. They're not, right. they're not genuine. And, but this, we can't really prove that they're government-directed, but that it's being widely believed that these accounts are state-related. Right, yeah. And you have that embedded in the article. You've got the, the results shared by that researcher, and it is quite stark. Like, it's very evident, right? And all the axes are labeled, which is, uh, you know not common in tech charts, but these ones have them all. So you can see that it's a really significant, steep increase in activity and, you know, timed quite, I guess, coincidentally, some would have you believe with the protests, right? But it's, yeah. yeah. So as you say, right, like you can't really attribute it to the state, but there's good reason to suspect given the timing and given, you know, what it accomplishes, which is, like you said, obscuring the ability for people to communicate about this and perhaps coordinate efforts or things like that, right? Right, right. And there is a, a nice uh, Washington Post article on the same topic. And the journalist, he managed to talk to an ex-Twitter employee who told them that, yeah, it's not uncommon for the state to use this technique of uh, mm. bot content to kind of obscure the results that people want to see. And it's also apparently that Twitter was aware of this problem mm-hmm. a few days ago. But till now, if I check it, it is still spam with these uh, porn and, and escort ads. So it doesn't look like Twitter has been actively working on it to right. correct the results. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, because this you wrote the article, came out on November 28th. And then, yeah, I was going to say, like, has there been any change? But it sounds like not. So it's uh, it's obviously been brought to their attention. I think it would, you know, we do pretty good over here at TechCrunch. And when we write an article... <laughs> People pay attention, especially people that work at these tech companies, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and it's, you know, been talked about elsewhere as well. So it's definitely something they're aware of now, but we haven't seen any change yet in kind of the bot activity trends, right? No, no. And it doesn't help that Twitter recently lay off the team in charge of battling state propaganda and misinformation. Right. So who knows who's working on it, even if they're aware. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know, because Elon has his, like, what is it, the 10th floor of heroes, his his software heroes, (laughs) and no one knows quite what they're doing there. But it's probably not this. It's probably like trying to figure out a way to sell subscriptions again or something so that he can make some money. Right. Because he's not making any money right now. But it is, I mean, it's doubly ironic because this is the thing very specifically that, you know, Elon had said early on in his plans around the Twitter takeover that what, it was one of his priorities was fighting bots on the platform. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a huge category. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of bots on the platform. But one would assume, you know, this is a textbook classic exploit of that problem. Yes. And you would assume maybe this is, is something he would want to target. <laughs> but seems like not, right? <laughs> nope, nope. There, there are definitely big holes to be filled. Uh, and 
I think it's almost ironic that if this turned out to be the state-directed effort to spam uh, users, Chinese users specifically with porn, it's ironic that like within China, we have this great firewall to filter everything that the government doesn't want us to see. And one of the first mm. things that was targeted by censorship in the early years was exactly porn. So once people manage right. to jump over the great firewall, all they see is porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite the twist. But then it's funny, though, because it, it serves the dual purpose of like perhaps invoking the ire of the platform operators, too. Right. Mm. Especially Apple. Like Apple is already not pleased when mm. platforms or apps in its app store serve this kind of content. Like they would, uh, I think if they had their druthers, they would rather, there's none of that at all, mm -hmm. right? They, I think they now have made some exceptions and they have some allowances to do with age gating and self-attestation about like user ages, right? Mm -hmm. So they can get access to some of this content, but they still don't love it. And we've seen Elon fight with Twitter a little bit this week. And even just now, as we're recording this, he's just talked about, you know, he went and visited Tim Cook and had a conversation about like how it was a misunderstanding. But people were talking about because of some of the things that have gone on on the platform, there's a greater chance that Apple will deem it not appropriate content for the App Store anymore, mm. right? But a long way around of saying, do you think that whoever is you know responsible for these attacks knows that it has that effect too? Like because it's porn, because mm -hmm. it's like it's objectionable content. Like it not only is perhaps like something users don't like, but it's also something the platforms don't like. Do you think that's like something they're aware of when they're doing these kinds of tactics? Oh, for sure, for sure. Hmm. But I, I don't know, I don't know. I think they definitely think about the possibility of being shut down by Twitter, but there's so many of them and, and maybe they're taking advantage of this very turbulent time of at Twitter. Um, they hmm. know that no one... That the world's too distracted, which yeah. may explain why they've managed to flood the platform of, of this content without any obvious intervention. And I, I can't help but also think about Elon Musk's interest, best interest in China. Tesla is one of right. their, yeah, China's one of Tesla's biggest markets. So people have been speculating like what kind of conversations that Elon has been having uh, with China. Maybe that might have played a role, but that's a wild speculation, uh, but but you can't yeah. ignore the fact that Tesla is betting heavily in China uh, with a big full battery um, sales uh, growing pretty healthily. Yeah, I mean, I was also speculating in that direction, I will say myself, like it does seem like it's a conversation that is more broadly being had about all of Elon's vested interests, not just in China, but he has a number of them, mm -hmm. right? And across both Tesla and SpaceX, and SpaceX has a lot of national defense interests and things like that. And it's so interesting to see how those conflicts play out when he's also running a platform he thinks <laughs> or he claims to believe should be the town, the free and open town square for everyone in the world. It's definitely been interesting so far. I think it's going to get more interesting as time goes on. I think, you know, when he's talking about allowing people freedom of expression, and mm. this is very specifically the opposite of that, I mean, we'll continue to check, obviously, on whether these things are being worked on or not, right? I mean, I'm sure you're paying close attention, Rita, and we'll continue to check back in and see, like, yeah. is it a problem being solved by anyone? Yeah, yeah. I'm also curious whether, like, how difficult it is for Twitter if they want to prove that those are state-connected action, like, because they label all the state media, state affiliated. That's are, right. are they able to also label these 
tens of thousands of bot accounts to be China state related. Yeah. Very curious from a technical point of view. Yeah, that'd be interesting too, to do any kind of like actual fingerprinting and trace it back. We've seen efforts by, I don't know about Twitter specifically, we've seen other companies try to attribute it in that way, right? And they do like sort of deep dive Mm. forensic investigations. But Twitter has, you know, maybe one person doing this off the side of their desk (laughs) because it's a hobby. Because like it's nobody's job anymore, or it seems like it might be nobody's job anymore. So yeah. that might be a tall order, but <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. But I, I'm curious about other social networks. So ha- have you looked at all about like, you know, the other Western social networks and like if we're seeing similar activity there and whether they're actually able to take action against that and like do things to slow it down? Yeah. So Telegram is the other big platform that these protesters have been using, especially to organize where they're going to go, where they're going to meet. And I've heard reports by protesters that the police uh, managed to track them down mm-hmm. with the Telegram groups and they come visited them at home and take them away based on their activity on Telegram. But I think that also is attributed to the fact that some of these Chinese users are very new to Telegram. They're not hiding their right. real identity and they're using Chinese phone numbers to register on Telegram. So all the Chinese phone numbers are tied to one's real identity. Um, it's not like you can buy a pay-as-you-go number right. without showing your ID. So the police can easily track down who you are and where you live if you, you use a Chinese phone number to sign up for Telegram. And so I, I'm seeing a lot of discussion within Telegram groups to warn each other, like not like just to use a Google Voice number right. or just change your profile picture. Don't use the one that you were using on WeChat and don't use any yeah names that, that can give up like who you are. Right. So I think, yeah, it's all very new to these Chinese uh, activists. Yeah. But yeah, police being able to track them down and I'm seeing screenshots. I can't verify the screenshots, but I'm seeing screenshots that are supposedly to be like conversation within the police department or the state security department telling the force going after the protesters to look up people's phone, like on the street to just stop people and check their phone, whether they've installed Instagram, whether they've installed uh, Telegram and, and Twitter, and based on that to evaluate their involvement in the right, protest. Right. Yeah, even yeah. just having them could be indemnifying, right? Because it's like, why Yes, else? definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. People are talking about having two phones. Like if the mm. police stop them, they give their Chinese phone instead of the other phone. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about those because mm-hmm. those are all things that are not like it's not the networks or the device makers. Those are exploits that are beyond. Right. Like they're outside of the control or sphere of those people because it's like mm. it's just a human being on the street that you go and like, you know, Apple's not going to architect like false home screen one and false home screen two for people or something like, <laughs> They've sort of gone to the end of it, but then there's still all these ways that you have to work around. And that's where the community probably comes in and, and advises people of like, now here are the ways to do this responsibly in a way that, you know, protects you and protects your identity. Yes. Yeah. I think Apple could do better. Yeah, they could do better. They absolutely could do better. <laughs> and they're definitely not going out of their way to help anybody. And in fact, quite the opposite, no. probably. <laughs> yeah. not, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Apple is also the reason why, well, it's complicated. VPNs are technically illegal in China and you can't find any VPN apps or the major ones in the Chinese Apple App Store. Yeah, well, we're going to keep 
paying attention to this, of course, and reporting on it. And yeah, I do hope. I mean, it's a shame that Twitter is used in this way. It's like a, it's one of the ways we make a lot of jokes, right? Like there's a lot of jokes on Twitter about sort of the state of it and what goes mm-hmm. on with Elon. And But when you see the real felt impact for people who were using it as a means of communication for like real change and you see once he's gutted the company and it, and it's kind of a shell of its former self but it still has all these great network effects but then it can't have the same impact that it used to yeah you realize that it is really a tragedy that it's in his hands and that he's the person controlling it as opposed to just like a funny joke as we watch it kind of burn to the ground uh <laughs> over here right yeah anyways yeah. thanks very much rita it's been great talking to you and we'll have to have you back on the show sometime yeah great talking to you too thank you Next, Ron Miller comes on to talk about the AWS reInvent event, as well as why Salesforce CEO Brett Taylor is stepping down. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Good. How's it going with you, Daryl? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice brisk morning here in Toronto. I'm sure it is there in Boston. It it really is. It's starting to get cold for sure. Yeah, yeah. But this week, focus was on... Vegas, a warmer place. <laughs> I wasn't the there, part. but I you was I was focused there. <laughs> yes, that's right. But what was going on there? So we had AWS reInvent, but can you give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what that is? Sure. So that's this annual customer conference that Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud infrastructure and platform arm of Amazon that makes a ton of money. They get together every year in Vegas for this huge event. Um, I, I wasn't there in person. Frederick Laudenbaum, our colleague, was. So I don't have a sense, really, of the of the size and scope of it. In past years, it's been pretty large. I know last year it was a bit smaller. But the whole idea is to get customers together, to make big announcements, to kind of do training and get people excited about the AWS ecosystem. So that's the idea. How well would you say they accomplished the goal this year? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is a good question, Daryl. So, I mean, from a coverage standpoint, well, we covered, and I I wrote this down. Last year, we, we wrote 28 stories. Right. Which is a lot of coverage for one event, right? This year, by contrast, we wrote 17. So it wasn't because we had fewer resources on the event because it's a huge event. It was because the event itself seemed to have fewer, you know, like mind-blowing announcements. Mm. And in the past, Amazon and Amazon Web Services have been kind of been known to be this constant innovation engine. You know, like they're just like constantly bringing this new stuff to market in a mind-boggling cadence. Right. And um, this year, while they did have some major announcements, it just felt like there wasn't that same number of stand up and take notice kinds of announcements. And I can go over some of the ones that were noticeable, but the general idea, the general feeling, I think from me and from Frederick, who was on the ground there, was that this just wasn't as interesting or maybe as exciting as years past. Yeah, yeah. I think I could tell just from participating in some of the back channel with you and Frederick around that, that 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 was the case. But even watching, because what's interesting is from the side of AWS, like they didn't seem to modulate the volume of how much they were talking about stuff based on the fact that it wasn't necessarily as spectacular or interesting. Like they still, they have three, is it three proper kind of like keynotes? Well, they actually have four keynotes. So there's the the big keynote on day one, which is the CEO, Adam Salipsky, makes all of the 
supposedly major announcements. And then after that, they have the AI keynote and then they have kind of the developer keynote with uh, Verna Focals. So you have you have that and then you have the partner keynote, which we don't really pay much attention to because right. it's you know, just kind of partnerships, which aren't really all that interesting. Usually the three major ones have news. The day two one, which was the one on AI and machine learning, which in the past, has been a huge newsmaker for coverage. We got zero out of it this time. Wow. Absolutely zero. To the point that Frederick wrote like kind of a mocking post about how little there was that it was announced. And it was just, it was a little bit shocking. You know, the two on either side of that did have some news and some substantial announcements. To me, you know, like when you get to be as big an ecosystem as Amazon Web Services is, you start to get to a point where you like you've got hundreds, maybe thousands of different products in this system, and like the more you just add, the more you it's like you know if you think back to Office and in the old days, you know, like Word, you would just like start getting features like globbed on one after yeah. the other because there just wasn't a lot left to do. And I'm not saying that Amazon Web Services is done, but there was a lot of stuff that was like, okay, this is a new feature on this existing product or. This is a feature that kind of allows you to do things with these several services to make it easier to do it so you don't have to kind of do it manually. This right. is important, but it's not exciting. Right. It's, it's a little bit gilding the lily, I guess, it sounds yeah. like, right? Which is what you were talking about with Office, too. Because Office, yeah, once you got to the point where it's like, it's a very competent word processor, right. which is what you <laughs> want it to be or right. with Word, right? It's like, after that, you're just kind of sticking things to it, right? But yeah. So you did mention, though, there are some exciting announcements that you did find. I mean, I, I mean, exciting in big air quotes, but uh, you know, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were they were substantial. And one, one of them that Frederick wrote about was called Amazon Data Zone. And this is a place to kind of move and share data um, and apply rules. So governance, which is really mm. particularly important in machine learning model making that certain rules are followed, especially with, you know, sensitive data. Yeah. So that that seemed like, you know, something that didn't exist prior to this announcement, although it may have had in some things like SageMaker and other products, there may have been elements of governance, but this was a particularly new product that kind of caught my attention. Another thing that they did, they made a couple of announcements about zero ETL and ETL is this process of getting data ready to use it in machine mm -hmm. learning. And, you know, it's not something that data scientists or data analysts particularly enjoy doing. It's a task that needs to be done to get data ready so that you can actually use it in a model. And Amazon is now moving towards what it calls zero ETL, which is a huge deal. You know, that if you don't have to do this ETL step, it's taking out a lot of the pain of dealing with the data that you have to get into your model yeah. or into your algorithm or whatever it is that you're building. And there were a couple of things that they're doing around Aurora, which is their database, and Redshift. Uh, Redshift. So this is the first steps, and I think this is the first announcement that they've made, if I recall correctly, about the zero ETL concept. And that's a huge deal. Yeah. The closer they can get to that, you know, that's pretty exciting for people who deal with gobs of data if they don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I just noticed that because it's like the acronym is extract, transform, and load. So I assume yeah. it's more like, I mean, a very poor analogy would be, you know, instead of 
having to like download a zip archive of something and then like open the zip archive, take all that data. Maybe it's like doc files, but you need it to be, I don't know, like rich text files or something. Convert those all to rich text files and then load it into whatever endpoint you want it to do. Exactly. You would be able to just drag and drop the zip file, but more impressive because right. it's uh, <laughs> Absolutely more sets. impressive because yeah. <laughs> it's dealing with, with huge amounts of data, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and data that has to go through I mean, the process that you just described is fairly complex, but I mean, it's a much more complex process to take data from one state and push it into another state to make it useful for whatever purpose you need to use it for. Yeah. And I don't want to get too much deeper into that because I'm not a data scientist, but I, <laughs> I, I do realize that it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty big deal to people who are. One of the other things that they came up with that was pretty interesting was it's called Amazon Clean Room or AWS Clean Room, which is kind of a weird name because it sounds like, you know, like you're in this room working on chips or something with, you know, hazmat suits on. But I mean, it's that's really, a charitable. It's a, <laughs> I was kind of like, maybe it's a murder room. Like, yeah. But, yeah. but it's actually about taking customer data. I mean, I didn't know what it was because I was offline writing when they mm -hmm. announced it and Frederick ended up covering it. But when I read his piece prior to coming on this morning, I'm like, oh, that's not what I expected. So, so basically <laughs> what it is, it's taking customer data from various sources, taking it into one place and making it useful. So if you took that zero ETL idea, but you took it and you applied it to customer data, it's giving a way to move customer data around to make it useful. And again, this is something that, you know, whether it's from a data lake or from a customer data platform or, you know, any number of sources that may be storing various types of data about a customer, and this is particularly customer oriented, that you want to mm -hmm. get into one place to make it useful, right? And so yeah. this is interesting to me because Salesforce made an announcement at Dreamforce just a month or two ago. They have a product they labeled Genie, which is essentially this uh, similar, a very similar product that mm. does the same thing. It's designed to bring data from these various data sources, bring them into one place and make it useful. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think in general, it seems like the trend there is towards reducing friction, just making things much easier. Right and less complex on the user end, right? And I think that was, if you look thematically at the things that were worth kind of paying attention to and what we wrote about, a lot of it had to do with that, what you just talked about, yeah. like making things easier either to connect or to move or to work with in some way. Right. Cool. Well, thanks for that overview. I think there is, like you mentioned, lots of coverage on the site, though not as much as in previous right. years, but that's appropriate. <laughs> and also, I wanted to talk to you about something different, but, you know, in the same ballpark, yeah. I guess, high, high level, <laughs> Salesforce had a really surprising departure yes. this week. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so quite out of the blue, Brett Taylor, who was co-CEO, uh, along with Mark Benioff at Salesforce, announced that he was leaving this week. And it was pretty shocking news, I think, to yeah. most of us who cover the industry. It was not something we expected. And one of the big reasons for that is because Brett seemed to be being groomed to be the heir apparent to Benioff whenever he decided to step back. Now, you, right. you may recall, I think you actually wrote the story when Bezos you know, announced that he was going to be stepping back and just be in the chairman role and that he was going to have somebody else, which eventually turned out to be Andy Jassy, be yep. CEO and run the day-to-day -day operations of the company. We had speculated that Benioff was probably ready to do something like that in the next couple of years. You know, he's a wealthy man. He has his philanthropy projects. He really loves Hawaii. And I 
kind of thought that at some point in the not too distant future, he would step away and, you know, go live in Hawaii and deal with his charity projects Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, as state chairman and keep his fingers in Salesforce, but step back from that kind of constant onslaught that he's been on for, you know, 25 years or so since he started Salesforce. It's been his company, really. And so it was surprising when the guy that we thought was going to be put in charge after he left walks away from that possibility. Right. Yeah. And I think it wasn't just outside observers that were surprised, right? Like I saw an article that Stuart Butterfield, Slack CEO, also said that it was surprising and that it, I think the exact quote was something around the lines of like, there's no way to spin this as a good thing, right. which, you know. <laughs> and there isn't. I mean, you know, this is yeah. a guy, I mean, aside from the fact, if you think that he was going to be the guy who takes over, right? And that succession plan is now broken. Mm-hmm. Brett's a smart guy. And he, yeah. he did help engineer that $27 billion deal to buy Slack. I mean, it was a conversation. It began with a conversation between Stuart and, and Brett uh, about... <laughs> the, the funny thing is, Stuart Butterfield approached Brett Taylor about buying Quip, which was the company that Brett started and then right. Salesforce bought, which brought Brett into the company to kind of bring the convoluted history into focus. <laughs> but <laughs> Brett turned the tables and says, no, we want to buy you. And, and then they ended up, you know, in negotiation and that happened. Mm-hmm. And so that he was the guy who kind of put that together. And I, I don't know if he was co-CEO at that point. Prior to that, he had been president and chief operating officer. So he had these, you know, lofty titles all the way along. And he moved pretty quickly from when Salesforce bought them, which was in 2016, they bought Quip, which was his company. And then he just kind of moved up through the ranks. And again, so it seemed like, wow, this guy is like moving. And, you know, Fred Taylor, he worked at Facebook. He helped found FriendFeed. He he worked at Google. I think he helped launch Google Maps. You know, he's been all over the technology landscape for the last 15 or 20 years at some of the key companies at key moments. And Mm -hmm. This seemed to be his moment, and then then he up and walked away. Yeah, I mean, it's really one of these ones that you imagine will probably be picking apart for quite some time, right? I'm sure you're having conversations with people. Absolutely. Yeah. About the why, you know, like what is the why right, yeah. here, you know, because, yeah. you know, sure, he wants to go build again, right? Yeah, I mean, that that's the story, right? Everybody's kind of... We hear that a lot, yeah. and it's, it's usually a euphemism for something <laughs> right. else. Right? Yeah. What did somebody say? It was like, it was the Silicon Valley euphemism for spending time with friends and family. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is a euphemism in itself. So, yes. But it's like, was there political intrigue going on in the background? And I, I haven't heard anything specific that there was, but there's been a lot of speculation that maybe the line of succession wasn't what Brett wanted. Maybe he wanted it to go mm. faster. Maybe right. Mark decided he didn't want to leave, you know, as soon as he had anticipated leaving. But one interesting aspect of this to me was Mark's reaction when he was on the earnings call and he went on CNBC for his call with Jim Cramer. He looked genuinely upset. I mean, this was not. Yes. And I mean, he was he seemed gobsmacked by the news. You know, like it came out of left field for him. Right. And, and I and I wrote a story yesterday that said it surprised everybody, even Mark Benioff. You know, yeah. I mean, that's pretty shocking when his own, you know, mentor didn't see it coming. Right. Yeah, that's like the part that I think is the most 
bizarre and doesn't because then you're thinking like oh well so if he would didn't see it coming like it's not like probably internally there was a falling out and then because then you would expect there to be less of that kind of reaction right if there was a falling out behind the scenes it would be more pr right i mean he's like he's like whoa you know i mean like he he was like almost in tears making right. this announcement and and he seemed genuine and you know authentic to me when he was making this announcement that he was really really upset that this was happening and that says to me like he didn't see it coming yeah. so i mean one other job that brett had was he was the board chair at twitter right. and so he took over that on december in the first week of december last year which by the way was the same week he was named co-CEO. So I remember writing a story like, it's been quite a week. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then a year later, he's got neither job. So it's pretty bizarre, right? But if you think about what's been going on at Twitter for that year, you know, I mean, that had to be pretty exhausting. Right. And, you know, I, I was slacking with Ingrid London, you know, the other day about this. And she's like, maybe he just like burned out. That's over totally, that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a thing that you don't see happen that much at this kind of level, but it's also like a totally human response that I think is very reasonable to expect may have happened, right? So anyways, I think, yeah, you'll continue to report on this probably, and there'll be lots of like reaction and industry action over the next couple of no weeks, doubt. I'm sure. So, yeah. I mean, and then what happens now? Yeah. You know, is there is there a new co-CEO? I mean, can you replace a guy like Brett Taylor, like, you know, just plug somebody right. in? And interestingly enough, yesterday afternoon, the Tableau CEO, Tableau is another company mm -hmm. that Salesforce owns, also announced he was stepping back, which caused me to tweet, is there something in the water? At yeah, Salesforce no kidding. So again, you know, these kinds of acquired companies, whether it's MuleSoft or Tableau or even Slack with, you know, Stuart Butterfield, like those guys were the deep bench of experienced CEOs, you know, along with Brett that, you know, Mark could tap into yeah. for these these kinds of roles. So now, you know, Adam Solipsky was at Tableau. He went to AWS. This guy, I, whose name, I'm sorry, escapes me right now, but he took over at Tableau. Now he's leaving, uh, you know, a year later, a little over a year later. So, you know, these kinds of experienced people, there's plenty of experienced people at Salesforce. It's a huge company, 70,000 people. But, you know, it makes you wonder, what is the succession plan going to be now uh, moving forward? Yeah. And is it how easily can Mark Benioff kind of extricate himself from the company at some point the way Jeff Bezos did if he wants to? Yeah, big open question. But thanks very much, Ron, for joining us. This is a very interesting discussion. Lots to digest here for sure across both yeah, these yeah. things. But I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next week in LA, we're hosting our dedicated space event, TC Sessions Space, on December 6th, and tickets are still available. So go buy some. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. 